You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Elon Musk feuding with the San Francisco mayor after makeshift bedrooms in the office is a city violation. But Silicon Valley giants are notorious for sleeping pods, beanbags, and other comfy setups. We discuss precedents and priorities. And FTX warning signs. How did the company win over so many venture capitalists and investors? We discuss due diligence and the venture capital outlook with CB Insights' Brian Lee. And Microsoft meets the FTC on its Activision deal after striking a Call of Duty agreement with Nintendo. And Microsoft doesn't own Call of Duty yet. We get to grips with gaming. But first, who else but Elon Musk is currently sparring with the city of San Francisco after Twitter turned some space at the company's headquarters into makeshift bedrooms, which it turns out is a possible violation of the city's building codes. Bloomberg's Sarah Fryer is here with more. We know that he likes to tussle. We know that he likes to tussle on Twitter. But in particular, does he have a leg to stand on here? How much of a focus is this for the city? Well, you know, as the city has said, they need to look into any complaints that come forth. And there has been a complaint about the Twitter offices, the fact that they're they're putting beds and armchairs into uh, various conference rooms, which I guess they have room for because a lot of employees have been cut or laid off. Um, but it is it is sort of unusual to expect employees to to sleep at the office in an actual uh, furnished bedroom. I mean, despite the culture you were speaking about with sleeping bags and nap pods. Yeah, I mean, talk to us, though, more generally about the balance, the lack thereof for tech workers at the moment in San Francisco. Are people having to sleep on the floor? Is this something that happens at large or is this very focused on really an Elon Musk cult here? Well, you, you see this all the time at startups, right? And, and even, even in early high-growth companies, I remember um, talking to employees at Snapchat a few years ago about how they had they'd, um, turned some bedrooms they, to maybe did a code violation in the opposite direction, turning some, some residential housing and bedrooms in uh, Venice, California into offices. Um, so, so I think that um, it, it's not unheard of. What I think we're seeing here is the pendulum 
swing from being really in the favor of workers, giving workers flexibility, letting them work from anywhere, letting them work from home, to this period where we're, we're seeing this big spate of tech layoffs and people concerned for their jobs and the, and the future of their employment and willing to do you know, sort of whatever it takes to prove to their employer that they are hard workers. Mm. So the power is really shifting back to the employer right now in this economic stress time. We reported uh, in this piece that Musk is making these sleeping arrangements available not just for existing Twitter staff, but some of the other workers from his other companies that he's brought in to do that. And we've reported in recent weeks that at first it was, you've got to come back to the office for 40 hours. Then it was some of you will be working 80 hours. What's going on inside Market Street office of Twitter right now? Everyone's got to be on the 10th floor, Ed. You've got to, you've got to show up. If you're a programmer or a designer, you better be there creating this environment of collaboration, of brainstorming. I think Musk really wants to feel momentum from employees. Meanwhile, these are the employees that were recruited based on this promise of work from anywhere forever. Um, Twitter was really a pioneer even before COVID in this idea that employees could could really be pr productive from, from anywhere they could log into the internet. And Jack Dorsey himself loved to occasionally yes. work remotely. It's just a completely flipped culture. Um, and I think one thing we need to be um, maybe a little concerned about here, um, or at least on the watch for, is does Twitter actually end up staying in San Francisco? Because we've seen the future of, of Musk's spats with governments in the past. Right. You know, the most prominent example being moving Tesla's headquarters from Palo Alto to Austin, Texas. I want to think about what Elon Musk actually said in his tweet. He essentially accuses uh, San Francisco's mayor, London Breed, of being too focused on this issue, not enough on the fentanyl crisis, as an example, and, and that's what he referenced. We had the San Francisco district attorney in our office for about an hour last week getting a sense of the priorities in this city. Where does San Francisco re revival, if you want to call it that, sit right now? Well, I think that there's a lot of a lot of hope for a, a different set of circumstances under the new district attorney, but it's not all on on her. Um, there is um, a lot of, of bringing energy back into the city that needs to occur, and you know the layoffs at Twitter probably haven't completely help that, right? I mean, as he's he's trying to get people to come back into the office, there are also probably a lot of San Francisco-based workers who, who no longer have jobs at Twitter, um, alongside a lot of other layoffs that we've seen at, at San Francisco-based companies such as, as Salesforce. So I, I do think it's going to be a long road, um, but I think Twitter, of all companies, is, is right in the middle of, of one of the more crime-ridden parts of the city and, and could be feeling any changes more dramatically. Bloomberg, Sarah Fry, thank you very much. Let's get to an update on the trial of Theranos' former president, Ramesh Sunny Balwani, which is still underway. Bloomberg's Peter Blumberg, who is one of our legal editors following this case and joins us with the latest. Uh, you know, we've been waiting for this since July. What is it that we're waiting for? We're waiting on the judge to impose a sentence. Balwani was convicted of fraud and the judge has to decide whether he'll get a prison term and if so, how long. And given it was more than 11 years for one Elizabeth Holmes, many are expecting what here, Peter? Well, somewhere around the same amount of time. It could be somewhat less or it could be somewhat more. But 
the prosecutors have made the case that they are equally uh, culpable for defrauding investors and that Balwani, in addition, uh, was, was convicted of defrauding patients. Caroline and I both remember the moment that the, the sentencing was passed for Elizabeth Holmes herself, just little more than 11 years, um, at the lower end of the range that, that prosecutors and the judge had kind of discussed. That was severe to many, uh, but there are others that are saying, actually, in Balwani's case, it could be even more severe. Well, it could because, um, as I mentioned, he was convicted of additional counts that she was acquitted of, and also we're waiting on the on on the judge to 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 indicate whether he may think that Balwani was somehow more responsible because he's older and more experienced. He had run a software company in Silicon Valley prior to taking this job, whereas she was 19, year old, 19 years old when she dropped out of Stanford. And so she was, was the younger, less experienced of the two. And then the other wild card, of course, is that during her trial, she accused him of abusing her during their romantic relationship, yeah. uh, sexual and psychological psychological abuse, which um, he, of course, wasn't uh, a witness in that case and didn't get to speak to it, and it didn't come up in his own trial. Uh, so if the judge has any conclusions in his own mind about whether Balwani somehow manipulated Holmes or treated her badly, that could also factor into the sentence. Of course this being a key one that many are looking at in terms of precedent setting as well. Peter Blumberg is going to be there with all the latest. We thank you so much. We await those headlines. Meanwhile, coming up, so much more to discuss in terms of the future of VC investments, in fact. And we know they're on track for a sharp drop, perhaps the sharpest in more than two decades this year. But what is the effect of FTX in particular? This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
talk about venture capital investments. Mm, not too hot right now. In fact, they're about to see their steepest drop in more than two decades, even surpassing the decline in the dot-com crash and, of course, of the financial crisis. Ed Ludlow, bring us up to speed. What are the details? Yeah, it's interesting. A data set published by Prekin on Wednesday, $286 billion deployed by venture capitalists globally in the first 11 months of 2022. But on a year-on-year -year basis, that's a drop of more than 40%, which is a big change, right? You think about sort of the energy in these markets in 2021. You have to go back, as you said, well close to 2000, years following in the dot-com bubble, also following the 2008 financial crisis. And this is the biggest drop since then. You know, it's an interesting environment, higher rates, putting a, a, you know, a premium on capital, down rounds and markdowns in terms of valuations and sort of skittishness, nervousness in the global economy. What was really interesting for me with two other data points, Caro, China and the US. In China, the value of deals down 50% and in the US down 45%. Those are our two kind of leading VC markets as well. So it's a confluence of factors, but we're coming from a high base in 2021 and it's not been a great year. And 2021 was extraordinary. We've got to remember, and the comparison is being made by none other than Brian Lee. We're really pleased to welcome him now. He's got great data, great statistics, and great context for us. He's, of course, the senior vice president of CB Insights Intelligence Unit. You do phenomenal work just crunching the data and understanding the mood change here. Just talk to us, Brian, about where we're coming down from in terms of 2021 and overall the, whether this 2022 demise sort of folds into 2023. Yeah, certainly, I think when we talk about 2021, against almost any measure, it was a record year, not only in terms of the amount of funding going to private companies, but the number of deals that were actually done. So we were moving at a pace of almost 100 companies being funded every day. Um, and 100 what, a day. And 100 <laughs> a day. So uh, what we saw was, a, as a byproduct, was enormous inflated valuations that we were seeing uh, from companies not only in the crypto space or in other kind of interesting areas, but telehealth, sustainability tech, et cetera. Um, in a lot of ways, it felt like there, were, uh, there was too much money chasing uh, despite the fact that it was so many deals, too few deals. Yeah. And therein lies some of the issues that now, of course, the main focus is one of FTX. All of these concerns sort of become emblematic in their demise. The fact that we've seen basically a lack of due diligence, money just flying after particular investments, particular companies that blew up the valuations, just extraordinary propensity. But also what's so interesting about the FTX situation, perhaps the cooling effect its own fall from grace is having on the rest of the VC market is that it too spawned other startups. It too made investments. Just talk to us about the work you've done and how sprawling FTX's own funding and funding in other companies was. Yeah, so we, we're learning more every day about the web of investments uh, from not only Sam Bankman-Fried himself, but FTX Ventures, Alameda Research Ventures, and their related entities. I think what we know is that collectively they've made hundreds of investments in private companies across a wide variety of markets, including crypto exchanges, DeFi, NFTs, and blockchain infrastructure, just to name a few. What we found in our research is that when we looked across the portfolio of companies, about three-quarters of those investments were in early stage companies. 
I think what makes this a little bit thorny is that each of these investments will now have to be properly valued and disposed of as we move through the bankruptcy process. And this presents a lot of challenges for companies that took money from FTX's venture arms for a couple reasons. So number one, obviously, thinking about the reputational hit that, uh, that FTX has had on the crypto industry, but also the broader valuation declines that we've seen across the past year, it's entirely likely that we'll see equity stakes uh, being sold at a substantial discount, probably as much as 50% or more. Um, so these types of events and this event, this event in bankruptcy will trigger a revision of each company's valuation, mm. creating potential issues for them as they attempt to raise additional capital. And so it's going to be a very difficult process for some of these companies as they think about how do we move forward, how do we raise additional capital at the valuation that we now have. Um, I'd also mention just very quickly uh, that we are also assuming that a lot of these equity stakes are cash. What we've seen uh, from some of the data that, uh, that, that recently came out is that some companies were funded with tokens. And so obviously that would decrease the value of the equity stake tremendously as the tokens themselves are drastically marked down. Brian, there's also the other side of the equation. I think we can bring up some of the names that invested in FTX and, and Sam Bankman-Fried. And many of those high-profile names uh, had to mark down the value of their stakes to zero, you know, from, a, from various bars. The question I have for you is about due diligence. How can some of these reputable firms uh, have made these decisions and, and come up with this result? Yeah, I mean, while I can't weigh, obviously, on the specifics of a particular VC's due diligence process, I think it's safe to say that at least a basic level of due diligence was done here, which would have included things like financials, uh, but also information related to governance protocols. So that said, I think there's two things that I'd say here. First, if there was fraud, which we believe that there is, if fraud was indeed perpetrated, it's entirely possible that there were a number of misrepresentations by Sam Bankman-Fried and other executives during due diligence that muddied the evaluation process. Second, while every investor in these companies presumably did do their own due diligence, the demand for deals and this sense of FOMO that we got in 2021, especially in the crypto space, definitely affected not only deal terms and valuations, but also likely increased the risk appetite yes. for many investors. So, uh, Brian, do I just I point out very quickly, Brian, if I may, uh, that, of course, no charges have been brought against Sam Bankman-Fried yet for fraud. I want to ask you really quickly before we run out of time, what does this do with valuations and interest from private markets in this space going forward? Yeah, so we clearly think that valuations already have been on a downward slope. So from Q1 2022 on, we've been seeing some pretty remarkable declines in terms of uh, funding. We think uh, that FTX uh, is only going to uh, compound some of the skittishness that I think that we're seeing from VCs, especially in this area. That being said, a lot of these companies, as I mentioned earlier, are early stage companies. And so as a result, their valuations might not be hit as hard. As well, uh, you'll see sort of differences in some of those spaces. So crypto exchanges, of course, but in blockchain infrastructure and those sorts of areas, you probably won't see as big of a hit directly attributable to FTX. Brian Lee, Senior Vice President of CB Insights Intelligent Unit. Thank you.
Now, layoffs are accelerating across tech companies. Adobe has just scrapped about 100 jobs concentrated in sales. Some of the employees who lost their jobs were given the opportunity to find positions elsewhere in the company. That's according to sources. Also, Plaid saying it dismissed 260 staffers, around 20% of its employees, citing changing macroeconomic conditions and the company needing to rein in costs. The tech industry has been slashing jobs at a pace nearing the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. In November, the sector announced more than 50,000 cuts for a total of 80,000 or so this year. Time now for our top tech calls, starting with, of course, Carvana shares sinking after Webbush analyst Seth Basham cut the online car used retailer to underperform from neutral. This follows a Bloomberg report that Carvana's largest creditors, including Apollo Global and Pacific Investment Managers, signed a pact, binding them to act together in negotiations with the company. The move is meant to prevent the creditor fighting each other in debt restructuring negotiations, which Basham views negatively, saying investors to see a high probability of default. And sticking with cars, Tesla may need to make additional price cuts in China in the coming year to stimulate demand, which could put more pressure on automotive gross margins. That's according to Bernstein. Tesla shares were down Wednesday as it offers further incentives to Chinese customers in an effort to boost sales. And finally, online travel stocks fell Wednesday, the space to be avoided by investors heading into 2023, according to Wolf Research. And a note to clients, on Wednesday, the firm cut its view to overall sec- uh, from overall underweight from market weight, this following an expected downturn in demand. Caro. Oh, poor old airlines. Are you getting on a flight anytime soon, Ed? I might be getting a flight across the Atlantic soon. Yeah. But I, you know, I got, that stronger dollar on, I got that stronger dollar on my side, which is rare in my lifetime, as you know. <laughs> yes, exactly. And now it is rather nice when you go back to the UK. But all in all, it is just this constant pressure on some of these. Well, these were the beaten up companies during the pandemic, right. then came back and now back under pressure. But really, it does feel some of the economic headwinds are so pressing at the moment, particularly when it comes to valuations in technology. Yeah, they had a bright spot coming out of pandemic. Everyone was eager to travel, but then the economic reality hit. And you can look for a deal online, but it's not always there. So key to keep it up to speed when some of these analyst ratings on these companies and indeed some of the share price falls that we see. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York, and I'm alongside Ed Ludlow out in San Francisco. And we have got to talk gaming now because Microsoft executives, well, they're actually meeting with FTC chair Lena Khan to discuss the details of that Activision Blizzard merger. Well, call it $69 billion deal. And Microsoft, Nintendo, meanwhile, agreeing to a 10-year deal to bring Call of Duty to the Nintendo universe. All of that is trying to assuage any concerns around that $69 billion deal. And of course, the agreement itself depends on if Microsoft is actually able to close that $69 billion acquisition. Here to discuss all of it, Bloomberg's Leah Nylon. And Leah, just talk to us. Lena Khan in a room, Microsoft executives. How much convincing do they need to do to get this through? Yeah, well, Lena Khan has been a pretty um, aggressive antitrust enforcer since she was named to the post last summer. Um, 
the FTC under her uh, already brought a suit against Meta platforms over a pretty small virtual reality deal, but one that the FTC was concerned would give um, Meta a real leg up in uh, virtual reality and allow the uh, social network to sort of dominate that. So they have a lot of concerns about the big tech giants sort of using acquisitions to get a leg up or become dominant in sort of emerging markets. Um, and Microsoft, one of the big reasons it said it needs a steal is because it thinks the future is cloud gaming um, and uh, cross-platform gaming, i.e., you know, you don't necessarily need to buy these fancy consoles from Microsoft or PlayStation or Nintendo. You might be able to, you know, access all the same games either on your computer or your phone and mobile device. So um, I think there's going to be a lot of concern from the FTC mm. about whether this gives Microsoft too much uh, power. I think I'm right in saying that in recent days, Lena Khan, you know, commented that there's a misconception the FTC is anti-deal. <laughs> it was also interesting last night, Leah, to look at the Bloomberg terminal and look at our reporting, this meeting's happening, and then the headline about a 10-year deal with Nintendo uh, for a, a, a product they don't yet own, Call of Duty. Are these the kind of things that, that Lena Khan wants to see Microsoft doing if they're to have a chance for this deal to go through? Yeah, Microsoft has actually outlined a bunch of things that they're doing to try and like placate the FTC. They entered um, a union neutrality agreement with the CWA over potential concerns related to labor. They also announced that they were no longer going to require employees to sign um, non-compete or non-disclosure agreements related to any like sexual harassment or sexual assault allegations. Again, trying to assuage some of the FTC's stated concerns about non-competes. So I'm not surprised that all actually that they announced that like right before they were going to come here to Washington to sort of meet with her. The important thing about the Nintendo agreement they um, signed or announced yesterday is it only applies to the console. If Nintendo yes. was going to offer one of these subscription services they wouldn't necessarily get access to these games. Well said and also I want to sort of shine a light on who they haven't struck a deal with Leah, and that being Sony and there was a great quote coming from Phil Spence of course, man who manages the Xbox part of the business and he's really saying that there's been one game industry participant that's really been raising all the objections, and that is Sony. And he thinks actually, basically, they're spending all their time talking to regulators and not trying to get a deal done. Truth in that? There is certainly some truth in that. I mean, Brazil is the only regulatory agency that has so far given um, a verdict on the deal. Sony was the major complainant there. The UK CMA has a very public process, so a lot of the filings that go through that um, are made public, and Sony has been, again, the main complainant there. They're very concerned about what having Activision's Library of Games uh, will make Microsoft the much more appealing gaming platform than PlayStation. Leon Island, we want to thank you so much. We also want to thank Phil Spencer there because we're going to update his photo. It's a little bit of an old school one. We thank you. Meanwhile, look, we want to stick with the world of gaming. We want to shift gears a bit because we've talked a lot about, for example, content moderation and freedom of speech on social platforms. Now, a new report by the Anti-Defamation League suggests we look at it from a gaming perspective as well. Now, according to this report, white supremacist ideas gain significant exposure through online video games this year. One in five adults, I'll say it again, 
one in five reported being confronted by white supremacist ideologies. Now, that's more than double the rate of a year earlier. Joining us to discuss Anti-Defamation League's Director of Strategy and Operations, Daniel Kelly. The data is significant. It's concerning because it's also being targeted at children as well. 15%, I think it was, of pre teens, pre-teens. Talk to us at the moment the response from the companies, the kind of games we're seeing this being involved in and how they're tackling it. Sure. So right now, the only game company that has an explicit policy against white supremacist extremism is Roblox. Um, other than that, you really don't have any major game company that is um, that has actually an explicitly stated policy saying that ex extremism is prohibited on their service. And the result of this is what we see in the games that make up the sort of top tier of where players are experiencing uh, white supremacist ideologies this point. Uh, Call of Duty is at the top with 44% of adults being exposed to white supremacist ideologies there, followed by Grand Theft Auto, Valorant, uh, World of Warcraft, and Fortnite. Now, it's interesting, of course, companies, in response to the story being written up, have been responding. And Roblox, as you say, has a policy overall, and they've been coming back sort of talking at length about some of their views. We know that overall the spokesperson from Riot Games, for example, has been saying they're creating a safe and inclusive environment for all players. It's core to their mission. Notably, Take-Two didn't immediately respond to a request to comment. But Call of Duty's Code of Conduct, they say they have got, it prohibits harassment, discrimination, and our games are designed for joy and connection. Daniel, when they want it to be for joy and connection, what can they do actively now to try and suppress such hate speech, such words that are so hateful to so many? I think th there's a difference between having a policy against hate speech and discrimination and uh, having a policy against white supremacist extremism and extremism generally. Uh, what, what these responses really show is how early in the process a lot of game companies are in uh, building out policies around these issues. They're sort of combining a bunch of different phenomena in uh, online spaces into one policy when in fact when you look at social media for example, they've spent you know a good amount of time differentiating between what is extremism, what is terrorism, what is hate speech, what is harassment, and how do these things manifest in their platform. I think the game companies need to do a lot more time uh, building policies and operationalizing those policies uh, such that they're able to actually action against uh, extremist content as well as find it on their platforms. Are there any technological solutions that ADL is proposing what are essentially top-tier names, right, in the gaming industry, invest sure. in, look at, to improve this situation? So I think one area where uh, companies can stand to invest more is around voice chat moderation. Right now, a lot of uh, tools that are available for content moderation are really focused on text chat. And um, the, the, the technology to detect and action content in voice chat is really nascent in comparison to that. So I would recommend that companies uh, invest in developing the technology to really be able to do uh, voice chat moderation at scale. We thank you so much. Director of Strategy and Operations, Daniel Kelly. Ramesh Sunny Balwani, of course, who was COO over at Theranos, has now been sentenced 13 years 
in a fraud case. He was the former president convicted of conspiring with Elizabeth Holmes, who, of course, got more than 11 years. So the COO of Balwani is getting 155 months all told. So that's 20 months more than Elizabeth Holmes. Now, overall, the judge will decide later on how much restitution Balwani must pay as well. Remember, he was, of course, convicted earlier this year on 12 counts of wire fraud, conspiracy to commit wire fraud as well. So we focus in on, of course, the long-running saga when it comes to this blood testing startup and as it draws to a close, Ed. Yeah, that's right. There was an expectation he might get a more severe sentence. Uh, let's get some other stories that we're keeping across. Robin Hood says activity on the platform is steady, but still much lower than 2021 levels. Robin Hood reported monthly active users for November of 12.5 million, about 33% fewer than the 18 million users it reported in 2021. Crypto trading volume is down 62% year over year, and equities trading volume down 54%. Shares of Robinhood are down 47% year to date. And things aren't looking better for Coinbase coming up. FTX's impact on retail investor trends and also institutional adoption of crypto. But first, let's take a look at NFT sales. They're down to a 16th month low following that FTX blow up. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We continue to gauge the fallout from FTX. We just had a great conversation with CB Insights about some of the impact it's had, their own funding issues and then the funding issues for other companies. Let's keep talking about the contagion, the chill of this crypto winter with Shanani Basak, who's going to walk us through, well, look, some of the future issues, some of the firms that are currently facing concerns right now. Yeah, we have to look outside of FTX because there are other firms that due to FTX or other reasons are facing issues. And I want to start with Genesis here because the lending 
business there that had faced withdrawals. They came out, the interim CEO came out with a letter to investors giving a general sense of timeline, which is very helpful to understand. As we know, they've hired a restructuring advisor. You have part of the letter here saying that they anticipate that will take additional weeks rather than days to sort this out. Okay. So in some ways, that creates some sense of calm because you have a timeline here. But again, that means weeks of anxiety rather than days of one to figure out what the timeline will be here and whether they will ultimately have to seek a more severe, uh, uh, um, you know, coming together of this issue. So that's uh, Genesis itself. That's on the lending side of things. I want to move over to exchanges because in the exchange world, there's a lot of interesting things happening. You've been talking on the show a lot about Coinbase. Very simple story there. They're saying that revenue will fall 50% this year. Not sure what it'll look like necessarily next year, but remember, so much of this is about what's happening in the broader crypto industry. And I do want to talk about what this means about how other exchanges, Caroline, are reacting in terms of competitive pressures. Mm. Because you have Binance US cutting fees. And remember, over at Bloomberg Intelligence, Eric Balchunas has been really great on this. It was bound to happen. Yeah. <laughs> it was bound to happen, this fee war that you're seeing in exchanges in the crypto industry, similar to what you saw in traditional finance. So what does that look like? Discounts. When BNB tokens are used for fees, volume-based discounts. So if you go over a certain threshold in trading, and again, this is something that they are proud of. They're a pioneer in zero-free trading, but these types of moves are going to continuously impact revenue as we see that yeah. fee pressure on the industry. Lastly, on exchanges, I wanted to talk about SushiSwap. Okay. Why? Because we're talking about centralized exchanges and cryptocurrencies. Let's we gotta talk, talk about DeFi. DeFi. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So what is happening over at SushiSwap? You have the chief explaining that there's a liquidity issue that could be created here. The token had plunged. The treasury has 1.5 years, so about 18 months of runway left. Uh, many projects, because of the crypto winter more broadly, are facing similar opticals. Uh, they have said in this letter here that they don't need to necessarily go by the way of all these other firms that are facing more severe issues. But uh, to be able to stave off some issues here, they do need to meet some changes in terms of how they think about the tokenomics behind SushiSwap. Good friend, Shanali Basek, thank you. How are you across so many things? I'm, <laughs> I'm in awe. Zooming out to the FTX impact on institutional adoption. Let's discuss with Stefan Wiet, CEO of Front Financial, which advises traditional firms on ways to participate in the crypto space. I would point out its valuation has fluctuated a little from $80 million to around $11 million during this downturn. I mean, you know, clearly there's an impact whether you're a retail investor there's an impact if you are an institutional investor considering dipping your toe what is the mood music from the clients that you serve yeah the, the, it's definitely had a major impact on sentiments i mean there's definitely uh, several uh you know there's several there's many institutional investors who have begun plans to enter the digital asset space and you know even as recently as the celsius luna disasters and just the general market downturn as a whole has caused them to step back from those maybe reconsider them all together but i will say that you know our firm has been around uh for for over four years now so we were born in the in the 2018 downdraft and there is considerably more institutions sticking around this time than there was previously i mean in 2018 it was really aggressive the degree to which institutions tried to dissociate from the space uh, notably the cboe killing their bitcoin future was quite extreme and you are seeing many institutions stick with uh stick with crypto this time around and, and see it as an opportunity in spite of the sentiment being understandably low stefan just to be clear have you any exposure to FTX or any other of Sam Bankman's uh, freed companies or, or uh, any financial relationship to him? No, we don't. I mean, we, we have to stick to our language in their press releases. We are a public company, but we have uh, no direct 
or, and that means no accounts with FTX or any other relationships like that and immaterial financial exposure altogether. However, as you point out, we are a firm that's operating in this industry and there is indirect impacts, uh, as you suggested, such as those to sentiment. Savan, talk to us about, can you give us a sense of how many institutions are coming to you? How many clients do you have? How many people are wanting to be in this space? Yeah, so we have a bit of a, a, we have a broad kind of institutional client. There are institutions, there is now an institutional client in crypto, which is is really here to stay. And I define those as, you know, the Bitcoin mining firms, large blockchain development companies, payment processors that are now ex, uh, accepting cryptocurrency that want to deal in large size, you know, via block. Um, and then there's uh, then there's the active manager, which has kind of been you know a very kind of slow uh, has had a very slow adoption cycle. You know I think in a lot of ways the active manager has kind of had trouble seeing where they fit into this space. Mm. You know the space is so volatile that it's not palatable for people to own. You know for firms that are trying to focus on ri- on strong risk adjusted returns and targeting twenty to. 10 to 20% annualized returns to hold assets as volatile passively. But what we did start to see at the end of the year was started to see institutions that are viewing the arbitrage uh, dynamics in cryptocurrency. Uh, for example, I mean, there's a, there, there are often times where, where crypto traders are willing to borrow US dollars at far higher rates than you see in borrowing markets uh, in traditional finance, just due to the lack of dollars in the ecosystem altogether. Um, and these dynamics that really present uh, arbitrage, alpha generation opportunities Opportunities that are quite unique to a nascent space like crypto, yeah. um, people are starting to understand. So um, those clients are, are coming in the in the tens, definitely not in the hundreds, um, but uh, it is it is happening for sure. You, of course, publicly traded company, as we said, and and of course, like much of the space, have seen a particular fall in your share price and market capitalization. When it comes to transparency, when you're putting out, are you putting out how many customers you have? Are you putting out what revenue statements look like? Are we are we expecting fewer people to be entering the space and coming to be served by a company like yours? So, I mean, specifically with FRNT, it's a little bit of an awkward question. I mean, we went public in at the end of April right as the market started to accelerate its sell-off, both in cryptocurrency and traditional finance. So, you know, we've been in a position where we haven't really had to guide the market all that much in terms of our expectations. And we're finding ways to do that as we understand the environment that we're coming into. Um, You know, for firms like ours, it's a bit of an interesting opportunity landscape because, you know, uh, we are getting, uh, as of right now, we're getting out of this relatively unscathed relative to a lot of competitors that are going out of business. So we've actually seen a large influx of clients that are looking to do trade with FRNT now oh, that they're maybe doing like with somebody influx? else. What numbers are we talking? Yeah, again, in the tens. You know, that's mm. that's that's in the tens of clients kind of coming to us uh, in in the in the weeks, months. You know, tens, twenties, yeah. thirties. That's that's material for us. I mean, this is you know, I think a lot of time that the institutional wave of crypto has been a little exaggerated in terms of uh, what's actually been happening. Mm. People have been taking yeah. a very broad yeah. use of the term institution, but. Yeah, we're, we're very pleased with the progress that we're seeing, in, in, even in an ugly market like this. Thanks for being that transparent. We thank you for it, Stefan Willett, FRNT, Front Financial CEO. Amazon shoppers are getting scammed by bestseller badges, and we're going to break down how this works. So merchants will take popular items like a phone mount for your car and put it in a category with much uh, slower sales. Those phone mounts are going to rocket to the bestseller rank because a lot more people buy them 
than buy windshield wiper fluid hoses. When's the last time you bought some of those? If you search Amazon for phone mount for a car, you're gonna see a lot of products. And a lot of those products are gonna have bestseller badges. It's kind of a stamp of approval. But only if you take a minute and look more closely, you're going to see that a lot of those phone mounts are in completely unrelated categories. We're talking things like replacement axle shafts. It's tough to say how widespread this scam is, but Bloomberg found more than 25 examples of bestsellers in the wrong categories based on a search for phone mounts alone. This is also a time of year when trickery really peaks on Amazon because shoppers are spending so much. U.S. shoppers are going to spend about $120 billion online in November and December. Amazon's policies prohibit sellers from putting products in the wrong categories, but this example alone shows how enforcement is, is really hit or miss. I must have been had on a phone case, Ed. Windscreen fluid pipes? What? <laughs> I mean, it's entrepreneurial, to say the least, to it some is. of them. Playing the system, people always try and do it, but it's a great piece by Spencer Soper. You've got to go online and indeed on the Bloomberg Terminal to go read more of it. But that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Do not forget to check out our podcast. We're everywhere. From New York, from San Francisco, this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.